Uh, my name is Barry Avey. I'm the CEO of Blessings International. And one of the things I really like to do is talk about leadership. Um, so I've done a lot of work with my group at Blessings as well as uh, or the other organizations I've been with. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today is leadership and, and some of the skills that may be of help to you guys. Um, so I'm supposed to do this disclosure thing. Um, so I have no disclosures, no financial relationships other than I'm an employee of Blessings. Um, so these are the learning objectives that we're going to talk about today. Describe what leadership is. Um, identify the role, duties, and responsibilities of a leader. And um, lastly, um, discuss conflict and, and how to appropriately respond. Um, overall, I'm probably not going to tell you a lot new today that you don't already know, but I'm probably going to tell it in a little different way. And, and the reason for that is, is on Amazon, I did a check, and there's about 30,000 books on leadership. That's what it looked like to me. I mean, there could be some duplicates, but 30,000. So there's a lot of information on leadership. So it's really how you put it together and how, how you make it work for you uh, as an individual. The, one of the big reasons I wanted to do this talk here was that in leadership or, or in the mission field, many of you are going to be put into leadership roles. Even in your communities where you're at, if you're a professional and you're working, you're going to be put into a leadership role at some point or another. And the main reason for that is, is when you go to work, you're the one who has the knowledge, and so the others are going to be looking to you to lead them. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is as we go through this. But the other side of it is, is in professional schools, they don't teach us this stuff. So when I was in pharmacy school, they didn't teach me any of this. They didn't teach me leadership. Now, we did have a business course. Unfortunately, the business course was run by a man who had two pharmacies go under. So I put a lot of that to the side. So yeah, I guess those who can't do teach, right? So, so I put that to, to the side. In law school, we had no information on leading. But then when, when we get out of school, and as, as I went to work uh, in pharmacy, uh, I had to be a leader of technicians. Or if, as a director of pharmacy, I had to lead others. Or as a, a CEO of a hospital, I had to lead others. But we don't get this stuff as we go through school. So I wanted to, to visit with you all because if you go out to the field and you don't have this information or you don't know that it's expected of you, there can be a lot of frustration. Um, so we're, let's, let's go on to the first slide. So the first slide is just basically about leadership. So this is the basic definition of leadership. It's the power or ability to lead other people. And so it's pretty simple, right? It shouldn't take 30,000 hits to just talk about this. But, but it's broken down in its simplest term in about four areas or five. So power, ability, lead, people. Now, one of the things I didn't put in there that probably is as important as any of these other words is other. So it's the power, ability to lead other people. And I say that because also on Amazon, I like Amazon if you can't tell. Also on Amazon, I look at self-help books. There's about 37,000 entries on that. So what that tells you is if we're having that hard of a time leading ourselves, it's really hard to lead other people. So that's, that's one of the things that, that we're going to talk more about as we go through today. All right, so let's start out with... Oh, wow, I'm really missing a lot of the slide, aren't I? It looks great on my screen. Huh. Okay, well, we'll see how this goes as we go along. Um, so at the top, which you can't see, it says the power or ability to lead other people. Um, and so when we talk about power, um, power is the ability to get others to do 
uh, what we want them to do. And there's about five areas that we can look at. So the first is reward power. So reward power is the capacity to offer something of value as a means of influencing others. So this could be many things. This could be if, if you have people that report up to you, this could be that you're going to give them a pay raise or that you're going to give them a promotion. It can also be just coworkers working together. You know, if you have one of those coworkers that really likes to give out pats on the back or edibles. So a reward power, though, is the ability to give out um, something of value to others. Coercive power is just the opposite. Again, this could be if you have people that report to you, you can withhold things. So uh, coercive power is the capacity to punish or withhold positive outcomes as a means of influencing other people. Now, again, same as, as reward power, this can be people who are working together. So if you've ever had that person that you work with that likes to go tell when you do something wrong, and so you're always cautious around that person, that's coercive power. They are holding power over you because you know they're going to influence you by what you do because if you mess up, they're going to tell the boss. And so that's essentially what coercive power is. The third type is what we typically see in the traditional pyramid um, organization. You know, we have a CEO at the top and then vice presidents and staff. So that's legitimate power. So that's the power that comes with position or title. Next is expert power. So this is the power or capacity to influence other people um, by virtue of a specialized knowledge. So when I was director of pharmacy, um, if I had a, a, chemo, a chemo pharmacist, that person would have held expert power over me. So in the chain of command, I had the leadership power, but they would have had expert power, so I know nothing about chemo. I don't even think I remember doing it in pharmacy school. But um, they, had that, they had that knowledge, and so if I had issues that I needed resolved or questions, they would tell me, and I would have to say, okay, for the most part, because I, I didn't know anything different. So they held that expert power over me. And then lastly, we have referent power. And I'm sorry you can't see that on the slide. Referent power is the capacity to influence other people because of their desire to identify personally with you. So this is that power that if you're a mentor or if they think you're just a great person and they want to relate to you somehow, that's what referent power is. All right, now if you'll notice in each of these, there's a word that, that flows through and it's influence. So influence is very important when we're talking about power and it's in all of these definitions. And so influence comes from about five different things. Um, Character, knowledge, experience, past successes, and abilities. So when, you, when you're at a position, what others are going to look for is your character. And the more character you have, or the better your character, I should say, the better you'll be able to influence them most likely. If you have great experience, great past successes, whatever it is, when you put all of those together in a, a single individual, some are going to have more of one area, some are going to have less. But when you look at that as a totality... That's what um, will influence other people. Abraham Lincoln, you know, if you think about Abraham Lincoln, he was a great leader in most people's minds. But that's not always the case. Abraham Lincoln in the Black Hawk War, so this was when, um, when the, the Americans fought with, I think it was the Sioux Indians. At this point in time, when people would put um, militias together, if they were the ones that put it together, they were in charge of the entire militia, and they were what was called the captain. And so Abe Lincoln put together a militia to fight the Black Hawk War. And so he was, by uh, virtue of having put it together, he was the captain. So there's a story about when he's leading his men through a field, and he's getting them, as they're going through the field, he's taking them to a gate. 
And at the gate, he's going to have to get his company to change direction so they can go through the gate. It's called getting the company endwise. So as he's going through, he's getting close to the gate, and he cannot remember what the command is to get his company to turn so they can go through the gate. So as he's getting closer and closer, he's getting more stressed because he cannot remember the command. But he's in charge of the whole group of militia that's going. So right before they get to the gate, he yells out, Company is dismissed. In five minutes, we'll reassemble on the other side of the gate. <laughs> so, so he gets them through the gate, but it's not through doing what a normal commander would do. Um, and so, while Abe Lincoln was great at, um, at leading, he had to learn. In the end, when he was discharged from the militia, he left the militia as a private. So he decreased in rank over time. And he said that was his really his rightful place because he did not know how to lead a militia. But that didn't mean that he didn't know how to lead. Um, trust, when you look at the character, knowledge, experience, past success, and ability, usually those will result in trust of some sort. And that's trust is very important for influence because if the folks that you're working with, whether out in the mission field or in business, if they don't trust you, they don't trust that you have their best interests at heart, they don't trust that you know what you're doing, they won't follow you. Um, and so my leadership team, when I arrived at Blessings, they were, we were working on, on the book by John Maxwell, um, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, and they reminded me that the day I arrived at Blessings, I had less influence with them as a leadership team than the guy out in the warehouse that had been there for 10 years. And that was simply because they didn't yet know me. You know, I had had, I had knowledge. They could see that, and I had experience. They could see that on my resume if they looked at it. Um, I'd also had some past, some past success. But they knew nothing about my character. They didn't know if, I, if it was in my best interest for them uh, to lead them or if I had the best interests of the organization at heart, they really didn't know. So the trust wasn't there to establish the influence yet. So I had to build that over the beginning of time as I was with them. And the more I was with them, the more they could see that, yeah, I really cared about them and I really cared about the organization. And so my influence was built with them as we went along. Um, so next we have uh, the power, or the, so we're talking about ability, the power of now ability to influence other people. So when it comes to leadership, some people are born with a natural ability, and some people aren't. Just because a person is not born with natural ability doesn't mean that they can't still succeed. Uh, I, I think natural ability, even if you have natural ability, you still have to do some of the basic things, like uh, have respect for others. Demonstrate courage when the situation calls for it. So even those with natural abilities still have work to do. They can't just set aside um, what they should be doing and rely on natural ability. A good example is, um, do you guys know who um, Bill Walton is? He was a basketball player for UCLA. You heard that name? And John Wooden. John Wooden was his coach. So this was uh, back in early 70s. Uh, they were both at UCLA. Bill Walton was a natural leader. You could see that on the court. The problem is his coach, John Wooden, was also a natural leader. John Wooden was probably a little stronger leader than Bill Walton was at that point. So John Wooden had a, a policy that his players could not have facial hair. Bill Walton wore a beard. And so when Bill Walton came in, John Wooden told him, you're going to have to shave that off. And Bill said, no, I'm not doing it. And John said, yeah, if you're going to play on my team, you're going to have to shave your beard. He said, no, I'm not shaving this. 
And so Bill Walton's response to him was, we're going to miss you, Bill. So John, John Wooden was ready to get rid of Bill Walton simply because he wouldn't follow what he was told to do. And so that's one leader with natural ability overcoming another leader with natural ability. So the interesting thing with that is, though, Bill shaved his face. They won two, three national championships and had two undefeated seasons. So working together with the natural ability, they did very well. But one of them had to be in greater power and position than the other. Um, when we, we look at natural ability, those who don't have it, um, or natural abilities, when, when leaders recognize leadership in others, they tend to follow the strongest leader. So that's an example of, of Bill Walton um, and John Wooden. So Bill Walton followed John Wooden because John Wooden, as the coach, was a stronger leader than Bill Walton. Okay? So that's important to know is that you know, we, we line up in position of who's the strongest leader with, with um, the strongest abilities. But for those who need to, to develop uh, ability, there's some things that we can go through to do that. Because um, not all leaders, again, have that natural ability, and, and it can be developed. But it's like any skill. You know, if, um, and that's really, leadership is a skill. Even if you have some natural ability, it's still a skill. If, if any, of you, any of you play golf, tennis, any sport, <laughs> even backgammon, if you play anything... If you just sat down and watched a video for 20 hours on tennis and then decided you were going to go try to go pro by watching that, you would never succeed, right? If I watched Tiger Woods play golf for 15 hours on video and decided I was going to go on the PGA Tour, I would never succeed. And it's because it's a skill that's developed over time. You don't get it by just reading a book. So even if you read all 30,000 books and you did nothing you wouldn't gain that experience. So it, it's a skill that's developed over time. Um, and part of that is, so adaptability or flexibility. In developing um, the ability to lead, you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to change course if the situation calls for it. If you're one of those people that starts down the road and you come across a roadblock and you say, I am just absolutely going to go across this no matter how long it takes, it's going to be difficult. Sometimes you have to weave around. You have to take a different route. You have to be willing to do that in order to succeed. Accepting uncertainty. That's important because many times we set a path and we want to know what that path is before we actually start down. We want to know 100% that we are going to have no failure because you know, a lot of times failure is unacceptable, right? No, it's not right. But a lot of people think it is. And so if they start down uh, a path and they're uncertain about what's going to happen, they don't want to go. So what we do is we start down the path, even with some uncertainty, and then we, back to point number one, we accept and and we move as we need to. Uh, You have to develop relationship skills, so we have to work with other people. Again, the power or ability to influence other people. So it's not just you. You have to work with others. And then setting priorities. That's important because as we work through situations, some things are way more important than others. And if we think everything is a level 10 and we've got to work on everything at once, we're going to fail. So you pick out what's most important and you take that. Maybe it's actually something that's not most important, but it's what we call low-hanging fruit. It's easy to work on. So you work on that, you get it done, and then you move on to something else. But if you try to do everything at once, you're probably not going to make it through it very well. All right, this is a, a graph about leadership ability that I thought, uh, thought was very interesting. So this is someone that has 
um, that has not much leadership ability. Okay, so their their ability is a one, but they really want to do well. So you can see that they don't have a lot of effectiveness, but they do have some effectiveness, but it's little. This guy over here, he's not off the charts. He's not a great leader. He's a six. But just by putting some work into it and developing that ability, you can see that his effectiveness has increased a tremendous amount. So this is someone who is working on increasing their ability to be a better leader. Again, not shooting for a 10, just shooting for mid-range. And the effectiveness is, in, is increased dramatically. Same thing's true on the opposite side. If you have someone that is over here and they're a 10 in leadership ability, but they really don't work hard at doing the other things, you know, displaying courage and getting along with others, their effectiveness is the same as what we see here. It's just very thin. So this, this again, this guy who's dedicated to doing well and trying to, to increase his ability a little bit is doing much better than someone who has off-the-charts natural ability but doesn't care about working at it. Um, Don Shula said, I don't know any other way to lead than by example. So Don Shula was the, the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for a number of years. And Rudy Giuliani said, um, he's the former mayor of New York, said, you cannot ask those who work for you to do something you're unwilling to do yourself. It's up to you to set a standard of behavior. So I think they spoke to it very well when, when you look at this, um, this uh, poll by Opinion Research Council. In this poll, workers were asked, what is one thing, so they only got to answer one thing, that um, one trait that was most important for a person that they were going to follow. And they said leading by example was number one. So 26% wanted to follow someone who would lead by example. So that tells you that as you're out working or you're out leading, you have to be willing to do what it is that you're asking others to do. Um, and it was surprising to me because leading by example was higher than strong ethics. So workers would rather have someone doing what they're asking their people to do than to be an ethical person, which is pretty surprising. Even the intelligence and competence down at 13%. You don't have to be smart. You just have to do what you're asking them to do, and they're going to be pretty happy with you. All right, so now we're at uh, the power or ability to lead. So we're talking about leading here. So there's, there's many ways to lead, um, and there's no one way in the end. So there's, again, 30,000 titles or books. Um, there are a lot of different, different um, things that people think are the way to lead. So I've got, I think, five of them here. And these are just, this is my, what I think is important, and they're in alphabetical order. So first is empathy. Um, so with empathy, empathy is the experience of understanding another person's condition from their perspective. So basically, you're putting yourself in their shoes. So to be an empathetic person, you're going to see and understand and feel what they're feeling. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or are meant to do and more in the light of what they suffer. So if you're empathetic with others, you understand what's important to them. Uh, and each of the people that, that you lead will bring in the outside world with them. There's no way that they don't. We all have experiences. We all have things that happen. And we bring them in with us. And your workers or, or the people that you're with will do the same thing. So you have to understand and learn how to empathize with them. But I will say there's a word of caution on that because we, we've all seen those people who everything is a level 10 for them. Everything is dramatic. 
And so they bring that in with them. When that happens, you have to try to work and learn how to coach them through those situations. Help them to understand that not everything is dramatic. Um, and sometimes we have to lead those people on to the, the, wherever they're going to be better suited, and it may not be with us. And that's okay. Not everyone is suited to be in the position they're in. But that's part of being a leader is understanding who should be there and who shouldn't and understanding how to move them on to, to their next role. Next is managing information. So um, effective leaders both listen and understand what they're being told. Um, Dick Daniels, in his book, Leadership Brief, suggests that leaders should follow a 25-25-50 rule. So leaders should talk 25% of the time and have something very important to say. They should ask questions 25% of the time, and those questions should be thought-provoking. shouldn't just be a question, just ask a question. And 50% of the time, leaders should listen. And when, when we talk about listening, we mean listen to learn, not just listening to absorb information. The important thing about listening to learning, guys, if your wives are sitting with you, ladies, please don't poke your husbands when I say this. Guys, we don't listen to learn. We listen to fix. And it's important to know that because when you're in the workplace, and some of you may say, oh, yeah, so wives again, don't hit them. But we listen to fix. We listen just to hear enough to then start putting our action into place. And when we do that, we don't listen well to everything else that's coming down the line, so we miss a lot. So when that happens, you have to be very conscientious about listening and listening to learn what it is the other person's saying. Put all your thoughts out other than what they're saying and concentrate on them. It's not easy to do, and it does take practice, but, but it really is important to listen to learn. Uh, motivation. So motivation is the intensity of a person's desire to engage in an activity. So a good leader needs to understand where their people are, what will um, mobilize change, how we get people to act through motivation. So Dave Stevens of CMDA says, uh, he talks some about Tenwick Certificate Program. Some of you may have heard about this, but when he was at Tenwick, they started a, a community health program. And when someone would complete that community health program for recognition, they received uh, a certificate that they could hang on the wall in their home. I think it even came with a nice frame, and they got to hang it in a prominent spot. So when others would come to their home that were in that community, they would see the certificate that this family had for completing the program. Well, through others seeing that, that motivated them to then move on to also want to complete this certificate program, so they got a certificate in their home. They said that it became so popular that they had to start giving out a second type of certificate because almost everybody in the community had the first type of certificate and there wasn't motivation anymore. (laughs) So it's important to understand that motivation and what motivates your people. Uh, Some people in the workplace will say, you know, we we all know these employees that I'm motivated by pay raise, right? And that's true to an extent. Most people are motivated for a pay raise for about two, about three or four pay cycles. Once those pay cycles have come and gone, they're used to getting that money and it's no longer an incentive. Many of you all may have felt the same way at some point. So you get a dollar raise. Oh, I'm excited. I got a dollar raise. A couple pay cycles go by and now it's just normal. There's nothing new to it anymore. So if if your employees or those that you're working with say they're motivated by pay, that's not right. Well, again, to an extent. It is right for a little bit, but then it will go away. So you've got to find the other things that motivate them, that make them want to do what it is they're doing. Um, problem solving. That's another thing that's important in leading people. One, we have to be able to anticipate problems. 
Problems are inevitable. We're all going to have problems no matter where we're at. They're going to crop up. Um, and so it's important that we as leaders understand that and recognize that we have problems. So when they do come up, we're not surprised. Some people are actually surprised that a problem develops. Well, surprise, um, they do. So you have to understand that that's going to be, be part of it. Accept the truth. You know, if someone comes to you and says, we've got a problem, one, number one just happened, and two, you've got to understand what that problem is. It may be very bad, but the worst thing that, that can happen is the truth. Or that's, that's what I've heard in the past. You know, the worst thing that you can tell me is the truth. I've actually told my employees that. When I was working in the hospital, I said, the worst thing you can tell me is what actually happened. Once I know what it is, then we can start working on it, and we can start trying to fix or change or do whatever we're doing. What's that? What did you just say? But what did I say? Yeah, I just said that um, that the people in the hospital came to me and said, and I told them, I just want to know the truth. Just tell me what happened. Because that's the worst they can tell me is what actually happened, and then we can start fixing it. Because if they don't, so many times employees don't want you to know what actually happened. They're going to skirt around the issue. And they're going to, they're going to tell you parts of it, but they're not going to tell you everything. And so if you don't know everything, then you're not able to move in and fix, correct, change, whatever it is you need to do. So you have to know the truth. You have to know everything that happens so you can work through it. And then lastly, handle one problem at a time. Again, it's that, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So don't try to take on everything at once. Just handle one problem at a time. Lastly, it's team building. Um, Again, it's not going to show up on the slide here, but team building is very important. No, No one leader does it by themselves. It takes a team. Uh, and so I've got a great team at Blessings, and we work very well together. But we've had to develop that. We've developed trust. We've developed um, the ability to, to discuss things that were ideological and not personal. Um, and so it takes team building to do that. Um, so, so remember that as you're, as you're hiring or as you're training, you're training and, and hiring these people into a team that's already there. Um, and again, no, no one does it alone. Yeah, because I'm, I'm going to be... Yeah, qu- um, questions at the end if we can, because I don't think there's another session after this, but I'll be really tight on time, I think. Um, but I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. Um, all right, this uh, power or ability to lead other people. Uh, so adding and subtracting uh, from others. When, when we enter into a, a interaction, every interaction is left with either a positive or a negative feeling. There... It's essentially never that you go into an interaction and you walk away with just a completely neutral feeling. It's usually either positive or negative. And so for those who leave things in a negative situation, typically they don't recognize that they're doing that. So as a a boss, if you leave an interaction negatively, you don't typically intend to do that. It just happens. But you need to be able to understand that, that those things are real and they actually happen. On the flip side... Those who leave situations positively usually do that very intentionally. They want to leave an interaction positively. And so they're thinking about how to do that. They're thinking about, as I go to do this interaction, I want it to be a positive interaction. Um, so there is a negative and, and positive for each of those. Empowering others um, is very important when we're leading other people. Uh, and the and the thing about empowering others is it's part of a team. You know, if we have a team around us, we want them to do the things that need to be done. But there's some barriers to empowering others that we see in the workplace quite often. One of those is a desire for job security. 
you know, if, if I've got a job and I'm not real confident in myself, I may not want to give someone else that information because I'm afraid if I give them the information, then they are not going, or, or then I'm going to lose my position because now they're going to have the information and this company or this person or whatever this is won't rely on me anymore. And so it's important to recognize that when people don't want to, to share information with others, there's probably something behind that. It's not just that, that nothing's going on. They usually are, are very insecure in what they're doing, and they're afraid they're going to lose their job by giving up that information. Uh, second is a resistance to change. Now, again, some people are good with change, and some people just absolutely don't like change. And when, when we change, we give up something. And what we give up is our comfort zone. And many people are not comfortable going through change and not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and then third is lack of self-worth. Uh, so again, it's very similar to number one, but some, some people are not confident in themselves, and so they feel if they, um, if they give others power, that power will be used against them. They don't recognize that giving power can actually be a good thing because in the end, you show yourself so worthy by training up others that the company can't afford for you to leave or the mission or whatever it is can't afford afford for you to leave because you have such a great knowledge base and you're so good at training up others. Uh, And then again, surround yourself with a team um, because teamwork is very important and none of us do this alone. All right, let's talk about just for a minute about leadership versus management. So... um, Where leadership is the power or ability to influence others, management is the conducting or supervising of something. Now, that can be things like budgeting, planning, organizing, controlling. So those are things that we see in many organizations that are part of of management. Now, that doesn't mean that these aren't important, because I'm talking primarily about leadership today. These are all very important things, and no organizations are going to succeed without doing these, or they're not going to succeed well because we all have to go through these processes. Um, But they're different from management. Uh, Arnold Glasgow, who was an American entrepreneur from just after the Great Depression up until about the 80s, said one of the tests of leadership is the ability to recognize a problem before it becomes an emergency. When it's an emergency, then the situation has has to be managed. Before that, it can be led. So what he's saying is, if we don't do the things that we're supposed to do as leaders, they become a level 10. And then we're having to manage our way through them, where if we would have recognized it some time ago, we could lead through it, and it wouldn't be a, a, an emergency. So it's important to recognize that. Uh, management is for a moment, while leadership is more for an extended period of time. Now, the truth is, every organization or every leader will have to have some of both. It's not an, an either-or. It's a both end. So you'll probably start out managing a lot. You know, understanding how to do budgets, understanding how to um, plan and organize. And as you have more wins and more success, then you get to do more of the leadership things. Some, some organizations are small, like my organization is small, so I do a lot of both. I do a lot of the management, but I also do a lot of leading. And so it just depends on, on where your organization is and, and what you're doing as to whether you'll do one or the other. All right, so... This is when you guys get to participate. So throw some names out of who you all think would be the greatest leader ever. Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> all right. How about some more? 
compared to him. Yeah. It's pretty tough, yeah. yeah. George Washington. Daniel. Washington, okay. I heard one over here. Okay. Brian Tracy. Brian Tracy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, any other names come to mind? Nelson Mandela. Mandela. Okay. I think is it two L's or one? I don't know. You know who it is. All right. So now let's talk about what are some of the traits. If you look at those, what five people? What are some of the traits that you see in these people? That make them great leaders. Integrity. Okay. My my penmanship's terrible. Sorry. Vision. Vision. Okay. Successful. Successful. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Anything else? Other traits come to mind of, of these great leaders or other great leaders that you know of? Others focused. Okay. Jesus led by example. <clears throat> Conflict man. <clears throat> All right, so that's a good list. And uh, confident. Confident? Okay. All right, so a lot of different things that we see in, uh, in leaders. Now, whoever had, uh, I think it was over here, the first one, Jesus Christ, I would agree. I think he was, he was the greatest leader of all time. And so um, let me read this for you because some of it's not on the screen. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, life as a ransom to many. Now, that comes from Mark. Um, similar passages are in John uh, 13. tells about the same story. Matthew 20, Philippians 2, 3-8. through 8, Paul writes about um, Jesus taking on the nature of a servant. Luke 22 talks about the Last Supper. Jesus says essentially the same thing, but ends with, I am among you as one who serves. So servant leadership, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Jesus was probably the best, or not probably, he was the best leader of all time. When you look at um, Christians across the world, there's about 2.2 billion people who identify as Christians throughout the world. Um, the major holidays, so Easter, Christmas, Good Friday, major holidays are based on his life. The calendar is based on his life. This was a man who came to serve and not be served. When he was here, he had, well, he technically would have had all the power he wanted. He used no power. He used influence only. And this is, you know, we, we see today where it is. Herod, um, Pontius Pilate, they had power. And they exercised their power. But Christ had influence. And so that's what we're, we're talking about when we start talking now about, um, about servant leadership. So servant leadership is the business of identifying and meeting the legitimate needs of people. Um, of people entrusted to their care. So... Again, there's probably four um, important things. Identify, 
legitimate needs. Now, legitimate needs are not wants. And that's important. When you're looking at servant leadership, it's meeting needs. Um, if my kids come to me and they say, Hey, Dad, I'd like to stay up till 3 in the morning. That's not a need. That's a want. Because, in my opinion, there's not many good things probably happen after midnight. Maybe even after 11. Okay? So, if they tell me that that's what, that's what they need, I'm going to say, No, that's not a legitimate need. That's a want. And so I want to be sure I'm meeting their needs. I'm feeding them. I'm clothing them. I'm giving them what they need. But I'm, that doesn't mean that I have to meet their wants. Um, people, again, uh, very important because uh, that's who we're working with. And then entrusted. So entrusted just simply meaning they're people that are looking to us for, for what their needs are and that their needs will be met. Okay, so this is Maslow's. Unfortunately, it doesn't come all the way down. This is Maslow's um, uh, hierarchy. And what's at the very bottom is uh, physiological needs. So the physiological needs are things like breathing, food, water, shelter. When we're talking about needs, this is what we're talking about, is that meeting those needs first. Once we meet those physiological needs, then we can go up to the secondary level of things like safety and security, love and belonging. But when we're looking at meeting the needs of those entrusted to us, we want to be sure these type things are what we're looking at. Not that um, that they want a corner office, they want a new computer. You know, we all like to have a new computer in our office, right? But that's not a need, unless yours is crashing. Then it's a need. Then we want to be sure to meet that legitimate need. Otherwise, it's a want. Um, now, we're going to talk in a minute about, um, about how the servant leadership looks. But as you're looking at this pyramid, the traditional model of leadership is basically like this pyramid. And at the top would be CEO. The second layer would be things like vice presidents. The third would be managers. Then at the bottom we would have the staff. And so that's, that's what the traditional model is. With the tr- traditional model, the folks that are down here are working on pleasing this level. And this level is wanting to please that level. And so everybody's looking at pleasing whoever is at the top of the pyramid. But what you don't see in a traditional model is the customer or those who are being served in the end, who the company is there for. They're usually at the very bottom. But we're not working in the traditional model on making them happy. We're working on pleasing the one who's going to set our salary, who's going to give us job promotions, who's going to set our hours, all those different things. So that's the traditional model. With the servant leadership model, it's absolutely flipped upside down. CEO is down here. And so that goes to the point of meeting legitimate needs. The CEO should be working to meet the legitimate needs of the vice presidents, making sure they have the tools, the resources, what it is that they need to succeed. The vice president should be meeting the needs of the middle managers. Again, not wants, but needs. The middle managers and supervisors, and at the top is the customers. Because everything should be focused on meeting the legitimate needs so that the customers, who we're all there for, are having what they need. So if you're out serving uh, in a clinic in Uganda, you may have a much smaller pyramid, but you need to be looking at meeting the legitimate needs of those that you're ultimately working for. And you do that by making sure you're going up the chain with it inverted rather than it flipped on the other side. This is another um, pyramid. Down here, unfortunately you can't see it, is Will. Uh, and so in the servant leadership model, we're looking at five primary parts. So the will, love, service, sacrifice, authority, and leadership. So it goes the same way. With will at the bottom, so if, if, if we're looking at the will 
we're looking at intentions and actions. So intentions minus actions equals squat. It's worthless. So if you have great intentions, but you don't do anything about it, nothing gets done, right? But if you have intentions plus actions, then you're asserting your will. You're asserting what it is that you want to do to see something get done. Oh my goodness, I'm almost out of time, aren't I? Um, so, then once you have the will, then you go to love. And then you go on up the chain. So I'm going to speed this up a little bit. I'm very sorry. Um, Vince Lombardi said, um, I don't necessarily have to like my players and associates, but as the leader, I must love them. Love is loyalty. Love is teamwork. Love respects the dignity of the individual. Um, and so that's what we're talking about with love. Is It's not the traditional love of, of the, you know, the feeling. It's more of the agape love, the service love, when we're talking about servant leadership. 1 Corinthians has all of these. You know, you, you've heard that. These are the different verbs that you would associate with 1 Corinthians. Um, and then Mark um, 12.31, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's, again, that's the love that we're talking about when we're talking about servant leadership, is treating those that are around you with that agape-type love. So, you know, love is something we're very uncomfortable with talking in a work environment. Um, you know, HR folks would be curled up in a ball right now saying, no, don't say that. But it's a different type of love uh, entirely. It's this love of, of treating like this. Um, this is essentially the same kind of slide talking about um, the different aspects of love and what that would look like in, um, in serving others. Uh, healthy environment, that's one of the things that as a servant leader um, you should look at doing. It. It's part of that is trying to create a healthy environment for the folks that you're working with. A healthy environment basically is like growing a garden. And if I do all the right things, I create the environment for a garden to grow. Sun, water, seeds, all that good stuff. I'm not growing the garden. That's something that God does. But I'm creating the environment for it to grow in. And so with, um, with influence and with a healthy environment, we're looking at, at doing that. Um, again, create a healthy environment. It's like a, a checking account is kind of the analogy I would use. So if you publicly praise someone, you would make a deposit into their account. If you publicly punish someone, you're taking a, a withdrawal out of their account. And so it's important not to publicly punish people because if you do, you're creating an unhealthy environment for them. As well as everybody else around. If I publicly punish someone here, I would take a withdrawal out of everyone's account because you're probably going to wonder, am I next? So it's important to, to publicly praise and privately punish. Um, and it's important because it takes four deposits for every one withdrawal. So it's a four-to-one ratio. Did that really just die? My goodness. Well, we're about out of time. But um, I had this problem earlier today. So 85%, um, these numbers are astounding, 85% of the general public sees themselves as above average. Did you pick that up? Uh, 100% put themselves above average in their ability to get along with others. 25% put themselves in the top 1% of their ability to get along with others. And then 60% of males rated themselves in the top 25 when asked about their athletic ability compared to other males. So what that tells you is we think a lot about ourselves. We think we're very important. So when you make that withdrawal out of someone's account, you're really making, you're really affecting them very big. Um, okay, so so choices. Uh, let me skip this. Let me just finish up by by basically saying uh, conflicts. I want to get to conflict real quick. 
Conflict is in every organization. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised when it does. Um, to get past conflict, the, the, the primary way to do it is you have to work together as a group to create trust among one another. So the first level is trust. When you trust that your best intentions are at heart as a group. So with my leadership team, we met together and we all agreed that we were going to hold the, the, um, the blessings international. Our company was going to be at the heart of all we did. And that was what was most important for us. So that if we disagreed on something, we knew that it wasn't personal. It was about trying to advance the organization. So once we all agreed and we all believed that we were going to have each other's best interest at heart and the company's best interest at heart, we were then able to engage in conflict. Conflict should be centered around ideas. And it's conflict centered around ideas and you, don't, you, you trust that you have each other's best intentions at heart there's nothing to worry about any longer because your idea may be different than mine, and that's okay, but we have to be able to engage in that conflict. If you can never engage in conflict, you're going down one road, and you're not going to veer off of it. And that's not what we want to do as organizations, whether you're out in the mission field or you're here in Louisville, Kentucky. You want to be able to move your organization along through conflict and, and through, through being able to have an open dialogue of ideas. Um, it's very important that you're able to do that because if you don't, again, it, it's very difficult to move forward. Um, one, one last thing that I want to just share with you all um, is about just some of the, the potential problem spots that we see in organizations. Um, let me get to that to make sure I'm hitting on all those okay. So if you make a mistake, fess up. So as leaders, if you're not willing to admit that you make a mistake, it could be very difficult for you. So make sure that you're willing to say, yes, I made a mistake, and then go into corrective action on how to fix it. Second, um, deal with small problems before they become big. You know, if they're big and you put them aside and you try to hide them and tuck them away, they only become bigger. Things don't solve themselves. So you have to be willing to step out and solve it. Third, don't let one person derail the team. And what I mean by that is we all have those people that we've been around or that are in our, in our organizations that are great at what they do. They have the most um, knowledge about a certain area, but they're the worst actors. But we're afraid to get rid of them because they have the knowledge, and because they know they could be getting, gotten rid of, they don't want to share it with anybody, so they still have that knowledge base. But having them on your team can derail everybody else. It gets everybody in a poor mood. They don't want to work. Be very careful with that. Sometimes we have to let people go and, and, and move them on to whatever their next thing is. Um, so don't let that one person uh, derail the team. Make a decision and implement it. Then change course if needed. Again, um, you've got to be willing to change. Um, so that's it. Sorry, guys. All right. Um, let me open it up for any questions. And anybody, if you need to go, not offended at all, you, you all are welcome to go. But if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to do my best to answer those. You have until 3.45. Do? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Why did you all tell me that? <laughs> I did. No wonder I was behind on time. Yeah. You didn't hold the sign up. Well, that's just now. All right. Okay, well, let me just go back and talk about a couple other things then. Um, all right, so preparing for change. So all organizations have to deal with change in some manner. Um, so... Um, John Maxwell has a great uh, acrostic about um, planning for change, and he lays it out as plan ahead. So, so the P is predetermine a course of action, lay out your goals, A is adjust your priorities, notify key personnel, 
allow time for acceptance, head into action, expect problems, always point to success, and then daily review your plan. So I wish I had it up on the screen. It would look much better. But, um, you know, plan ahead. Now, what, we, what you have to remember is anytime you enter into change, some change is going to be big, and you're going to need to really plan each and everything that you're doing. Other things are going to be small. And some of these things you're going to want to address. Other things are, again, you know, you're going to pick and choose how you, how you go into that. Um, choices. So I was talking about, going to talk about choices earlier when I really sped up when I didn't need to. Um, so we, we have only have to die and what? Pay taxes. Wrong. <laughs> we always hear that. You only have to die and pay taxes. Truly, you only have to die and make choices. Because some people choose to not pay taxes. Right? We have those people here that don't pay any taxes. And they've made a choice. Now, their choice could result in something bad. They could go to jail. Or they could be on the run. But they've made a choice. So we only have to die and make choices. We all make choices about our behavior. And and when we do, just like those who decide not to pay taxes, we have to accept the outcome of that. Whatever that choice is. Um, Choices... Maybe unnatural. You know, if, if, am I getting it up there? Okay, so some choices are unnatural. But we know that, that maybe we need to enter into that. You think of a, maybe a two-year-old who wets their pants. Right? For them, they don't know any better. It seems natural to them. So they don't know that there's something better out there. We got that? Okay, thank you. So choices um, may be unnatural until they become a habit. So, again, with that, with that two-year-old, there, there's four, four stages of developing a habit. One is that whatever the issue is, if, if this two-year-old is at 18 months, it's unconscious and unnatural for them to know that they shouldn't be wetting their pants any longer. Um, and so they have to work on that. So then about two years, two and a half, they become conscious that there's a problem. They still don't know how to take care of it, so you put them in their pull-ups when they go to bed at night because they haven't controlled it yet. Third stage, they're conscious and they're skilled. So they're conscious, they know there's a problem, and they're starting to fix that problem. And then fourth, they're conscious, which is not up there, or they're unconscious, and they're skilled. So if you think back to when you, those of you who drive, when you began driving, it took a lot of remembrance to flip that blinker on when you would turn, right? At least for me it did. Now I'll go home sometimes, and I'll flip it on if I'm pulling in the driveway. Nobody's anywhere around me. But it's a habit now for me. Unconscious and skilled. I just do it. Um, Okay, so this next slide was, this was the acrostic for um, plan ahead um, when we prepare for change. And then we talked about conflict already as I kind of rushed through that. But all great relationships, the ones that last over time, require um, productive conflict in order to grow. True in marriage, parenthood, um, friendship, and certainly in business. But again, important to distinguish between productive ideological conflict from that interpersonal politics. What we see with this interpersonal politics is that back-channel fighting. If you have a group that is very uncomfortable and doesn't trust each other yet, they're going to go behind each other's back and have different conversations. And that's very unhealthy because what you want to do is get those conversations on the table. But they're uncomfortable doing it because they don't trust that if they put that that issue on the table that the other person is going to have their best interest at heart. Um, this is, is the um, slide that shows how we first we, we engage in trust, then we can engage in conflict. 
Once you can engage in conflict, then you can commit to a plan. You get to hold each other accountable with that plan, and then you can focus on the achievements. So one layer adds on top of the other. Um, we talked about a lot of that. All right, talked about potential pitfalls. Okay, so Dick Daniels again um, in, in his book he sums it up like this. He says, um, perhaps leadership is not so magical after all. Leadership is simply the hard work of learning how to influence others and accomplish collaboratively what no one could have done on their own. It means taking the time to think before acting. Once you've acted, it means taking time to reflect long enough to know what just happened, why it happened, um, how it happened, and how to replicate the narrow path to success and avoid the broad path to failure. So that basically sums up everything about leadership in one slide. These are some uh, just some things that I would recommend, some, some recommended readings. Beyond Medicine uh, by David Stevens. Uh, has some great things about leadership in it. Uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Patrick Lencioni. And then Seven Habits um, of Highly Effective People by Steve. All right, so um, now back to questions. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to, to talk about those. Did you have one? Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned handling one problem at a time. Handling one, yeah. And... How do you recommend doing that when, in, in like just a normal healthcare setting, sometimes you have five fires to put out at once? Yeah. Okay, so what she's asking is, is when you have those times where there's five fires that you have to put out at one time and, and everything seems to be a problem. Yeah, I think you have to learn to prioritize. All the fires aren't the exact same fire. They're not all a level 10. You're going to have a level 10 in, in one time. Some are a level 7. Some are a level 5. So you have to figure out what's what's the priority. Maybe the priority is the level 5, even though you've got a level 10 out there because the level 5 can be dealt with quickly. You get that one off your plate. It was quick. Now, if the level 5 is going to take as much time as the level 10, you probably go on to level 10 because you're going to be more effective with the level 10 than you would have been with the level 5. So it's just learning to prioritize what those problems are. And it takes, again, it's developed over time, and it takes skill to, to learn how to do that. On, on our unit, um, we had a bunch of fires, and um, actually our boss chose several people on the unit, and they, we called it a redesign unit, and we actually empowered the people on the unit to say what was priority, what wasn't, so it gave them a voice. And we put it on an Excel spreadsheet and prioritized it of what was high, what was low. And then we implemented those and empowered people to implement them. So then they felt the change, and it was very successful. Yeah, yeah so empowering, what she's talking about is empowering others to help implement changes when they, they need to be implemented. And, and the ability to empower others is very important to get them engaged in the solution and not just thinking about the problems. Yeah, great. Anything else? Yeah. How do you deal with like, uh, disrespect from your subordinates? Yeah, okay. Disrespect from subordinates. Um, a couple of different things that, that come to mind with that. One is, it's very hard for a young professional to come out. Uh, and I say that because when you get out of whatever school, pharmacy school, medical school, whatever it is, nursing, you come out with the knowledge that you need in order to, to start doing what you're doing. And so it's hard to come out with that knowledge and have people that are now reporting to you that may not respect you. Um, and so one, you have to let some time go by. You have to build the trust. 
Uh, you can't just walk in, like me when I showed up for work, I can't just walk in and start firing things off and say, everybody's got to trust me. I've got influence over every one of you. You can't do it. It does take some time to build that trust and build that influence. Now, once you've done that and you've taken the time, if they still don't disrespect you, if they still don't respect you, you have to work through some of the coaching and talk to them about what's going on. Why is it that they're not respecting you? Why is it that they don't, um, they don't seem to want to follow what it is you're wanting to do? Maybe they think your ideas are bad, but you haven't had the opportunity to develop that trust yet to engage in the conflict, and so you have to be able to open those doors and be comfortable enough yourself to be able to do that. If it still doesn't work and you've done some coaching and some working through it, it may just be that you're going to have to move them on to the next job. And again, I've said that a couple of times today. And I say it because it is so hard for us to do. You know, it's hard for us to let people go when we care for them, when we know they have families to feed, when we have all these other things going on. But I'll tell you from experience, some people are very relieved when you let them go. Because they really don't want to be there. There's something better for them out there. They don't know what it is. They don't want change. So they would rather come to work every day and be upset and be mad and be disrespectful because they really don't want to be there. But they don't want to go through the process of getting another job. And so if you help move them on to that next role, everybody's better off. So that's you know the th- three things that I would look at as you go through that. Yes. Um, so I work in both secular and Christian workplaces, and, and I find that the way we deal with it as believers among fellow believers is a little different and kind of softer, which sometimes dilutes professionalism. Yeah. So could you talk about that and, and how yeah. we can like extend grace but still hold each other's feet to the fire? That is very difficult. You know, when I interview folks, one of the things I make sure that I talk about is when you come to, you know, if we hire you and you come to work, we don't all just give each other hugs when we come in in the morning. You know, and some people have that misperception, but because you're going to a Christian organization to work, everybody gets along, and we have no problems. That's absolutely not true. Because we're all human, and so we bring that humanness in with us. Um, but the, the goal is to extend that grace when we have problems. And so to do that, I think you have to go through those other steps. Of First, you've got to create that level of trust. When I first got to Blessings International, I think there was a big trust problem among a lot of the leadership team. Um, they did not necessarily believe that they had each other's back. They all wanted Blessings to succeed. There was no doubt about that at all. But they had different visions of how they wanted it to succeed. And so when they would present their different visions there would be some infighting and there would be a lot of those back channel conversations and so we had to we had to come to a point where we all first went through that level of trust so we sat down um, we had a few meetings about that as a leadership team we shared some things that were very personal for us so that we were able to open up uh, and then once there was some trust being developed then we were able to enter into some of that conflict that we needed to to be able to advance the organization but as we were going through that we did have to extend grace to one another we still do and no organization is perfect. Uh, and I think that's very true for those folks who are out in the field that are, you know, you're, you have different people coming from different environments. Everybody has the same goal, um, but they bring the different environments in with them. And so it takes time. And, and a lot of people aren't patient. They want these things fixed right away, and you have to be patient enough to work through that. Can you speak to specifically how it applies to this? How it applies what? Like when someone's unprofessional and disciplined needs to be administered. 
Oh, yeah. Um, so discipline depends on your organization. Some organizations have a progressive discipline policy, and so you have to follow those routes. Um, so our question, if you all didn't hear it over here, was how does um, being in organizations like we are, how do you discipline people and how do you apply that discipline? Um, again, privately discipline, number one. Don't do it in front of others. Uh, because if you do, those relationships are going to be broken really quickly. Uh, and then you try to coach them through the talk. You know, some of this stuff is really hard, but you have to be willing to tell them what the problem is. And as some managers, uh, we don't want to tell them what the problem is. We just want to say, hey, there's a problem. But you've got to go through the, through the uh, process of telling what the problem is. If there is a problem and you're going to discipline, you probably also ought to have a resolution. Okay, you're acting like this, or this went wrong, I need you to do this. And, and you do it one time, and then they go away, and, and they create you know, the same problem again. So then you have to bring them back, and you say, you know, again, we have the same problem. So it's, that, it's still progressive discipline, but it's in a manner of re-coaching and retraining and giving them time to react to it and, and to, to build um, their skill set so that they can do what you need them to do. But always do that in private. Uh, and then also make sure that they understand that the, the conversation you just had really needs to stay where you were at. Just like you're not going to take it out there, they shouldn't either. Because if they do, they just open the door. And if people come to you, you know, it's hard as the manager or as the leader to then not be able to address things. I mean, you still really can't um, because those things are in private. But that's something I always make sure to do too is to say, you know, we're going to work on this together, but it needs to stay in here and don't go out and, and have that conversation. Yeah, written action plans are, are important. Uh, I've certainly had to do some of those. And you know, part of that written action plan, so part of the discipline with the written action plan, is having in there that if you don't meet these requirements, you'll be discharged. And I usually, when I do a written action plan, if it's risen to that level to have a written action plan, I don't say if you don't do this for six months, I, I say you just can't do it again, period. It's open. I mean, if this happens in three years, you're subject to discharge because we've already gone through this and by that time, you should have created a new habit and we shouldn't be having this problem. So, yeah, um, written action plans are good. Um, you know, most places are at-will employment. So that means at my will as an employer, at your will as an employee, we're working together. Um, but if you have a progressive discipline policy, that's kind of like a quasi-contract. You have to follow the policy or the employee can claim uh, wrongful discharge if you don't go through the policy because they have that expectation as a policy that you're going to go through that before you would discharge them. Okay. Any other questions? Any online classes that would be helpful for leadership skills like mm. for people in leadership to take? That's a great question. I don't know of any right off. I imagine they are. If you go out there and look, especially like um, with human resources type things, um, there's probably some, some good courses on leadership. Um, but right offhand, I don't know what those are. Yeah, well, the, the books, there's also a lot of great videos. And John Maxwell has a lot of videos online that deal with leadership. Um, so you can look at those as well. There's a, a global leadership summit that happens uh, out of uh, Little Creek every year that's really excellent. Okay. Uh, we've got a lot of those talks online. Patrick Lencioni is yeah. uh, one of the regulars on that. Okay. Yeah. All right, so if you all heard that global leadership summit, um, may have some good information that you can look at.
All right, anything else? All right, thank you guys. Apologize for speed.